0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I will start out by introducing the folks that uh, are joining me for this discussion. So first up, I'd like to introduce Shalini Catania. Shalini is the director and producer of Coded Bias. She's a Brooklyn-based filmmaker and activist known for uh, her debut feature film, Catching the Sun, which focuses on the race for a clean energy future. Shalini, welcome to the panel.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for bringing Coded Bias to your festival.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for making it. Next up, I'd like to introduce in Deb Raji. Deb is a 2020 Mozilla Fellow who's worked closely with the Algorithmic Justice League, founded by Joy Boulamwini, uh, on several projects to highlight the cases of bias in computer vision. Deb, welcome.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, And next, I'd like to introduce Meredith Broussard. Meredith is an assistant professor at NYU and author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. She's an associate professor uh, at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute uh, there at NYU. Meredith, welcome.
3: Hi, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, I'm excited to have all of you. I'd love to start with a little bit of the backstory, Uh Shalini, tell us a little bit about how this project evolved. How did you come across Joy's work in the first place? What inspired you to take this on? Uh, how did it all start?
1: Well, first of all, thank you again for bringing the film. And um, thanks for everyone for taking time on a Saturday to talk about movies and engage with these ideas. It, it gives me a lot of hope. I, I sort of stumbled down the rabbit hole. Um, I love technology. I'm a sci fi fanatic. um, And a lot of my body of work has to do with disruptive technology and how it impacts the marginalized. And um, with my previous work, I was sort of looking at solar energy and how could it uplift, you know, sort of working in middle class communities. And um, with this film, I didn't know anything about algorithms or AI, sort of. what Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg um, taught me. And I sort of stumbled upon the work of um, Joy Bolamwini and Cathy O'Neill and Meredith Broussard and Sophia Noble and all of these amazing scholars and research and sort of stumbled down the rabbit hole of the sort of dark underbelly of big tech. And I think quite along Joy, you know, who is just basically trying to make an art project work and stumbles upon, you know, racial bias in commercially available facial recognition that's already being sold to the FBI and to ICE and to law enforcement. Um, we sort of stumble down the rabbit hole with her, and um, and sort of move from like, you know, for me, I am so grateful to the cast of the film for giving me such a profound education. In some of these technologies, and um, really, these women are so brilliant that I, I usually get only half of what they say, and half is a lot. <laughs> so, um, and I and I could get like a small bit of that into the into of their genius into this film. So, I'm very grateful to them, and I think um, what they've shared was terrifying to me, which is that so many of these technologies. First of all, I didn't really fully understand the way AI is gonna transform our world and everything that we care about and is already making such important decisions about who gets hired, who gets healthcare, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I learned through these um, brilliant data scientists and mathematicians was that this stuff that we trust so implicitly um, with our decision-making more and more um sometimes it's not vetted for racial bias for gender bias sometimes we don't even know if it's accurate if it's fair uh if it's not even tested in some cases that that'll be that'll not do unintended harm and so i started to see with no rules in place um through the characters um the activists who you know fight back and oftentimes win. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about the film I think is that it's still manages to be optimistic and hopeful because, um, it shows the power of, um, people when they speak out and make a difference, you know, um, it, whether it's sharing groundbreaking scientific research or, um, exercising your voice. And, um, And so I hope the film will be a conversation starter on so many of the issues um, in it.
0: Awesome, awesome. Uh, Meredith, you come to this from the perspective of a journalist. Can you share a little bit about your work and background and, and book and all that journalism kind of brings to the conversation?
3: Sure uh so what I say is that uh, my academic research is about artificial intelligence for investigative reporting uh, but I wrote the book um because I would I was working on this project uh, that I called the story discovery engine that I uh, you know helped journalists to quickly and efficiently uncover new story ideas in public data uh, and I would explain that I was doing this and people would say, oh, you mean like you made a robot reporter? And I would say, well, no, but that sounds cool. And I realized that I, artificial intelligence is this thing that we use and we accept is happening, but we don't really understand it. So I started talking about uh, the nitty gritty of AI in plain language. As part of my journalism practice, uh, and I come to journalism I kind of by a roundabout way. I started my career as a computer scientist. Uh, I worked at a T Bell Labs. I worked at the Media Lab, where Joy studies. Uh, but one of the reasons that I quit was because of the misogyny and the racism. The tech industry is better nowadays than it was when I quit, but it still has a long way to go. So when I, when I write about AI ethics and I write about the problems of artificial intelligence, it's informed by my own experience with being in the tech industry and just becoming really disillusioned by it. Um, and so the book is about uh, how do we understand the inner workings and outer limits of technology? Uh, So that's actually what brought uh, Shalini and me together. We ended up in a conversation about AI uh, and uh, one thing leads to another. And now we're here talking about this amazing movie.
0: That's awesome. Uh, And and Deb, uh, you play a central role in all of this. (laughs)
2: yeah um it was really fun and i i love hanging out with joy um and Cellini is obviously amazing and incredibly gifted as
0: uh as the a, a documentary
2: director so she knew what she was doing um, uh but yeah um glad to be here um i i definitely sort of um, have a similar story to, to meredith in the sense that um i was very much on the side of the people that were creating these algorithms i I was very. I kind of like fell into. I was very into like tech entrepreneurship, and then I ended up working at a a startup, a computer vision startup, and learning um, about machine learning um, and getting really into it. I just thought it was so effective. That was my first impression, and I think the longer I actually uh, worked as a machine learning engineer building these systems, the more disillusioned I became. So actually, I I was a really big fan of Meredith's um, book because uh, it was a very I think some people would describe it as a little, a, m- a much more measured take than a lot of the work that was out there at the time where everyone was very optimistic about AI and it was sort of a more realistic, grounded perspective on things. Um, and I think that I was sort of also in a phase too where I realized that I I definitely had a different experience, like a different lived experience than a lot of my peers at the time. Um, I stood out in a lot of ways. I was like the only like black woman for miles in any conference I would go to um and i was beginning to feel really isolated and it was actually by chance that um i went to 2017 neurops and saw like an afro in the crowd and waved her down and it was (laughs) timnet and um she invited me to join the black in ai workshop which is pretty much a community she's created of black researchers in the space and it was like the the only like you know the only time outside of working with joy that i had sort of seen you know, um, black researchers doing this kind of work. um, and it kind of reaffirmed to me just the importance of our contribution and our perspective in the conversation of like how we build AI and what AI can look like in the future. Um, so it was really after that experience that I began um, you know, working with joy on her work on on her 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 work on gender shades and a lot of the a lot of the um, advocacy work that's featured in the film. Um, and then from there, it kind of escalated. I, I was supposed to spend a summer uh, at the Media Lab working with her. And we're like, okay, we're going to like start with this question, end with this answer. And uh, I can kind of keep going and keep doing the machine learning engineering thing. But yeah, I think eventually, uh, it just kept going. There were just more questions to to ask and answer. Um, and things just kept, kept going and kept escalating. But um, she's de- definitely been a great sort of mentor for me in this space. And I'm really excited that I had a small role to play in that film um, and uh, have been able to participate with her in a lot of the advocacy work.
0: That's awesome. And what are you doing now as a Mozilla fellow?
2: I'm keep keep, like sort of still answering that same question I thought would take a summer to answer. (laughs) Uh, We're looking into sort of um, how to formalize algorithmic auditing practice so that we understand the set of questions that we want to bring into a situation, uh, we have a procedure and we have tools that we can use to help us actually analyze these systems even when they're deployed. Um, so I'm working on a lot of that, building resources and frameworks around how to how to do that auditing work.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Shalini, in your intro, you mentioned uh, sci-fi as kind of a grounding point for you and and we had a little discussion in Slack while we were watching the movie, after that sequence of, of, of sci-fi movies, you know, what folks' favorites were. I'm curious, you know, if you have a favorite AI and sci-fi film or, yes. uh, show or something, and you know, if so, what that is, and more broadly, kind of how you see the role mm-hmm. of uh, film as kind of impacting technology.
1: Well, anyone who loves me or tries to love me has to watch Gattaca as like sort of required viewing to be in my life. I I just think it's an extraordinary movie and in some ways has a lot to do with what we're talking about in terms of a different kind of determinism. This idea that your destiny is sort of pre-made by the data of the past and um, that kind of determinism, which um, Meredith sort of upends in her in her work. And I think that um, by saying the data from the past can't predict the future is kind of, um, um, anyway. And Alex Garland, who was the sci-fi maker of Ex Machina in his new sci-fi series, Devs, says the people who program the future, uh, basically that people who know so little about the past shouldn't pro- be in charge with predicting the future. And I thought that was really telling. Um, I love sci-fi so much. I mean, and I I feel like it's so much a part of, um, uh, anyway, the way I think of the world in some <laughs> ways, my worldview. Um, but I, I want to say that almost everything that we know about AI is through the lens of science fiction artists and storytellers and writers. Um, and I think that when I was trying to translate the research um, of and trying to translate it to a visual medium, I sort of pulled from these tropes of Steven Spielberg and Min- Minority Report and Stanley Kubrick, um, his computer Hal, um, and it, through Meredith's scholarship came to know that um, Marvin Minsky, who was one of the fathers of AI, was in dialogue with Arthur C. Clark, who was the designer of HAL, to uh, the, 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 the robot, the bad robot in 2001. And so I feel like there's always been this dialogue between writers and artists uh, stretching humanity imagination and what technologists create. And I think our imagination has been stifled by what Joy calls the coded gaze, the the or what Meredith calls techno chauvinism, this idea of this very small group of people, um, not just like, you know, um, being overwhelmingly the people that design these technologies, but also uh, the people who imagine the science fiction technology future, our science fiction futures. And so I'm so grateful that um, I really think that um, the cast of the film uh, sort of inspires us to have a different imagination about these technologies. And I think that's sort of the relationship between art and what's real. It's like uh, we have to imagine it first. And I think um, in some ways, we've been tricked to believe that these are the only ways these technologies can work. These are the only economic models that these technologies can work on in these sort of predatory models. And I think in the making of this film, I learned that there are are a lot of different ways. And, um, you know, as an artist and as a and, and as I actually believe that limitation spawns innovation. And I think that we should put some rules on technology (laughs) so that, so that we can um, spark this new era of, of um, imagination and innovation, but um, have some limitations of of doing it in the context of democratic
0: ideals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that Alex Garland uh, did devs, but now that you mention it, kind of the visual feel of the house and ex machina and the kind of secret you know, future dev layer and devs uh, is there's a clear linkage there.
1: He's amazing. I'd be curious if you guys think his science is legit, but. You know, his science
3: is very (laughs) fantastical. Like I watched uh, Ex Machina and devs back to back and I love Nick Offerman and I, I had been actually avoiding watching Ex Machina for several years. And my husband said, okay, you have to watch this. Like if you, if um, you were going to talk about AI, uh, well, I, I, so I, I, I do, watched it and it made me angry, like in exactly the same way that I thought it would make me angry because like, it's about having robot women as sex slaves. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> that is a trope in science fiction, and it makes me angry yeah, because I, it is anti-feminist. Like, the idea that mm-hmm. you want to make a a sex robot just because, so, like, it's, I don't know, there's all kinds of layers of oppression I, there. So, it, science fiction is so fantastic, as Shalini said, like, I am also like, a longtime sci-fi fan, I just think it's so important to, like, separate what's imaginary from what's real. Mm. And if we go back to, say, golden age science fiction, like, there are no Black people in golden age science fiction at all. Mm. And that's that's a factor of unconscious bias. I mean, it might be conscious bias, but I would I would like to be generous and say it's unconscious bias.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so the field of artificial intelligence, just like the field of computer science overall, just like the field of mathematics, which computer science is a descendant of, like has a raging problem about uh, sexism and racism and classism and like all kinds of snobbiness. And the field has just never explored that. And so the unconscious bias of the small and homogeneous group of people who are dominating the field of math, fields of math, computer science, physics, et cetera, those unconscious biases are getting embedded in the technologies that those people create and that all of us use and all of us contribute to.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to just add to that because I watched her, um, which is sort of, and I got really upset. (laughs) I got really mad. Um, And I also watched, I also got mad at Ex Machina as well. And I think it's, it's a similar thing of, um, you know, these are obviously like very considered and beautiful works of art. Um, uh, The vision that they have for technology is ambitious. I think another part of what frustrated me and probably frustrates a lot of us as like women of color um, is that, um, you know, the promise of technology doesn't always stand for us. So I think there's an understanding that you kind of have of the limits of what technology can do you don't buy as you don't buy in as easily to the vision because even on the screen you're seeing like who it works for and you're wondering who it doesn't work for just because of the nature of how that dynamic plays out in the real world so you know i i think you know on one hand in my mind i'm like oh you know that's not how chatbots work how would that even be possible like in my mind there's sort of the logistical burden of that but even if you suspend that belief um there's still so many like values and prejudices that like you know um intentional or not uh find their way into like our, like we like we sort of we sort of uh, so one example is with chatbots like a lot of the um, in her, it was this like female voice, this very sort of like, and, you know, with a very specific type of personality, a very specific specific type of female personality um, that kind of aligns with misogyny in a lot of ways. And is it can become very problematic. And it wasn't too far of a leap from um, some of the papers I've read on like conversational AI and like the ideal personality. Like I've read a lot of papers where they'll discuss um, setting the personalities for chatbots to be that of an 18 year old flirtatious and obedient female assistant or something. And it's just like such a weird, like um, specifically male, you know, grounded to a specific cultural expectation, like fantasy of what AI is supposed to be and how it's supposed to present itself. Um, That I do think that um, we're now at a point that because we have, you know, part of why we're having this conversation now is because a lot of a lot of women, a lot of people of color are finally asserting their existence as like full people that will have to also interact with AI. Like it's not just for uh, that dominant group that we're building these tools and these systems, it's for everyone. And as a result of that, um, you know, the fantasy for one person is a nightmare for another person. Um, so I think that's like, I, I totally resonate that like, yeah, sci-fi is this great inspiration, but it also really um, highlights, you know, whose fantasy we're working towards as a field and how we might need to um, think more creatively and imagine different kinds of realities. You know, Deb,
3: I'm reminded of something that Nicholas Negroponte said about Nicholas Negroponte, one of the leaders of the Media Lab, said about uh, news technology. Uh, so at one point he said, "Well, every day my mm-hmm. wife reads five newspapers and clips out articles for me that she thinks that I'll think, I'll find interesting. And why can't we just make a computer program that does that?" And I think about this when I think about the fantasy of automated news, right? Because people do have all <laughs> these things that yeah. they imagine that journalism is going to be in the future, right? And I just think like that shows such enormous disrespect. Mm-hmm for the labor that goes into curating. And and I think about, my God, like people get paid to do that job of of reading five newspapers and picking out what's important and saying, oh, let's just make a program that does that just is enormously disrespectful to the amount of work and care that goes into that process. And it also betrays like a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what you can and can't do with computers.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is it yeah. the way that that is said, do you think, that creates the disrespect or the very idea of using a computer to replace someone's labor that is the source of the disrespect?
3: That's a good question. I mean, I think that automation in general is really useful. Like there are so many things in my life that I am so happy to have automated. And then there are other things that actually a human does much better than a computer. And so saying, oh, we should just make a computer do this because this doesn't have value is a way of Mm -hmm. undermining the human effort that went into it. So this goes back to the very uh, beginnings of computing. Uh, So I gotta forget who it was. Um, There's this quote about uh, how men of substance should not waste their time doing mere arithmetic that you could just like hire peons to do arithmetic. Uh, And this was the guiding principle for a very long time. And in warfare, Uh, gunners had to use these things called firing tables in order to figure out like what angle they were gonna put the cannon at and how far that you, you know, how far you needed to shoot your artillery. And the way that you calculated this uh, was you used some complex math, but nobody can do complex math when they're being shot at, okay? So they had these things called firing tables that you would use to look up the appropriate angle. So when you're on the ship and you see the other ship uh, and you need to shoot your gun, you, you know, can aim it appropriately and you know, kill the maximum number of people. Uh, so computing these firing tables was uh, just kind of grunt work uh, and there were often mistakes. And if there was a mistake in your firing table, then you know, your ship could get blown up and that was bad. Right, obviously it was bad. So there was a push to use uh, machines to generate firing table. And so this is how computing started, right? So we had machines that did simple calculations and the uh, development of the digital computer was spurred by the impetus to calculate better firing tables. And the firing tables were com- were made by human computers, right? So if you remember in Hidden Figures, uh, the uh, the stars uh, had jobs as human computers, computers. Uh, yeah, that was that was a real job. but I, those jobs got automated out of existence. And there was an, a lot of disrespect for those jobs in the first place. But the thing is, like those were good jobs for people. They were jobs that were worthy of respect. So when I think about, uh computer scientists being disrespectful about uh human labor that's the kind of thing that i think about it goes back to the earliest days and it shows like how they're just not respecting other people in the way that that i think people ought to be respected
2: yeah, I was just gonna add, um, like, my impression of that is sort of when I see what I call mom apps coming from like Silicon Valley, where, um, like, there's an app to do your laundry, and like an app to make you breakfast, like everything that your mom used to do, like, that's sort of what, <laughs> you know, um, a lot of the, the 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 sort of Silicon Valley guys will sort of try to automate. And it it, on one hand, it's a little bit, like, it feels like a distraction from some of the very you know, the harder fundamental questions that they could be addressing with technology. But on the other hand, it actually does demonstrate a certain disrespect for people, uh, maybe not their mom directly, but, you know, people that have been doing that labor um, uh, that they're automating out of that process. So I I think that there's definitely a lot there. Also the fact that a lot of computers, um, a lot of human computers were women um, and that that kind of factored into how, their roles were disrespected um, and how they were devalued and thus seen as candidates for automation. Um, I think that says a lot. I was also going to flag too that uh, the disrespect doesn't necessarily always, it's not just about um, sort of who we're replacing with automation, but also all of the data that goes into it. I think there's a lot to learn. Um, There's a lot of learning that's happening right now in the machine learning community around the respecting data subjects um, respecting people's information as we make use of it um uh treating uh humans with dignity even to be represented by a data point rather than in our faces um so i think there's definitely a lot um as a field that we're learning about just respecting other human beings and being mindful of their humanity as we deal with their data uh and also like disrupt their lives with whatever we build
0: Hmm. Yeah, this this topic of uh, respecting contributions calls to mind for me the recent release of the movie Social Dilemma um, and uh, how in, you know, you could look at that as a case of the folks who built and got rich off of these systems, then kind of raising alarms without highlighting the folks that are doing the work to you know raise these issues. I'm curious uh shalini from your perspective as a you know director of someone who you know put heart and soul into a work like this how that resonates for you uh and of course uh deb and meredith as well your perspectives
1: just on the social dilemma and in context to coded bias and yes okay. well We're i think there, at least. jeff orlowski who's the director of of Social Dilemma is a, is a friend and a colleague through the Sundance Institute, um, who I've known for a long time. We both did films about climate change before this. Um, I'm delighted my film is often compared to his film because I think he had a lot more money to work with. <laughs> um, uh, so it's great that we're in the same conversation. I'm, I'm delighted to, to be in that conversation. But I actually think that um, we're at the beginning of a conversation and both films have a role and a perspective to play um, Jeff and Tristan both come from inside the industry um, they're you know both know each other from Stanford um, many of the people in the film are you know sort of tech insiders that actually built the systems that um, I'm sort of critiquing and coded bias and I think that that's important too I think that um, Uh, He probably has a Rolodex that won't take my phone call and maybe vice versa. And so when we talk about inclusion, I think from a filmmaking perspective, I don't have this idea that like every film has to have this like Noah's Ark there needs to be two Latinx people. There needs to be two LGBTQ people. And there needs to be two, you know, like I, I'm not of that belief. I think that there is a perspective. And um, I think my film comes from a very distinct perspective and his comes from a very distinct perspective and both are valuable um, in, in their own way and making their own commentary. But what I hope is that... Um, we're just at the beginning of understanding how these systems work. We're just catching up um, and we're interacting so closely and these systems are changing our social, the way we socialize in such major ways that I think we need all the tools that we can towards literacy, you know, towards understanding how these systems work so that we can um, make sure that we're, we're, using our best judgment for safety.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I think the contrast between coded bias and social dilemma is like a contrast. I kind of feel in a lot of interactions I have with uh, like other members of like the broader machine learning community versus like the people sort of doing the work on this sort of in this, you know, fact, fairness, accountability space um, or AI ethics space. I think that there is like a, like not just the demographic difference between um you know a lot of women and people of color um uh voicing the critique at the moment and um a lot of uh sort of insiders like you mentioned uh, uh arriving at a different conclusion but i think that there is this there is this interesting contrast in terms of the type of concerns that people are raising i think we are at the beginning of we are at the beginning of the conversation but it's very clear that um uh you know a lot of the researchers featured encoded bias, um uh, you know, who happen to be more demographically diverse, but also in terms of the viewpoint represented, um, it is one of discussing sort of impact to individuals, discussing privacy, discussing um uh concerns around uh you know how racism and sexism can be propagated through these systems in a way that can really disrupt the life of an individual. And I think the message from Social Dilemma was just a completely different set of uh, concerns. And I think, uh, you know, they're valid concerns around like social media addiction. Um, I think there was also, you know, a conversation around misinformation. Um, Both of them are very valid, like surveillance and social media addiction are both problems that exist. Um, But I think it was just interesting for me to see through the two films um, the difference between what uh, a lot of minority communities are worried about when they see technology and what a lot of these insiders um, are prioritizing uh, when attempting to address these problems or prioritizing when they talk about the limitations of technology. There's clearly a very distinct uh, disconnect there.
3: And I think that everybody who saw the social dilemma should also see coded bias. Uh, They're really great films to see in dialogue with each other. One of the things that I think Shalini does so well in Coded Bias is she really gives a complete and thorough and surprising and educational perspective on what AI is and isn't. And that is incredibly hard to do. AI is sophisticated math. Uh, that's what it, it comes down to. When we're do, doing machine learning, what we're doing is computational statistics. And anybody who, you know, in data journalism, which is my field of journalism, like we talk about numbers all the time. We make graphs. It is insanely difficult to talk about numbers and especially talk about big numbers because the human brain is not actually built to understand big numbers. We kind of experience a hundred and a million as like roughly the same, but they're actually completely different. So talking about math is really hard. Uh, Doing a film about complex mathematical topics is really hard. And doing a film about complex mathematical topics and the way they play out in the world and interact with issues of social justice is insanely hard. So, you know, this is the big win of coded bias. This is what Shalini has done so well is she's brought all of these issues to life and she, she allows us like a very accessible way into understanding them. And it allows the, the viewer to think about what are the other ways that AI might be impacting different aspects of life. And hopefully it makes people feel empowered to say no when AI is being used in a way that is inappropriate or is not in line with our values as a society.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Willie asks, how do we balance the need to address algorithmic specific issues, for example, facial recognition with the need to push for broader societal change, for example, dismantling the carceral state? Um, and, And when I think about... Uh, Shalini, your your bio. You're a, a director and an activist, uh, and uh, both Meredith and Deb, who just disappeared, who will be back shortly. <laughs> um, uh, Shalini, in your case, your activism is your art. In many ways, um, you know, maybe you're doing other things, and you can share some of the other things you're doing. But you you've kind of dedicated yourself to this activism and. Um, expressing activism in your work. I think for a lot of folks, there's a separation between kind of their, you know, their work and their life and their activism. You know, how do we balance all of these issues to kind of drive for change?
1: Well, I am not someone who claims to have balance in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I won't say that. But what I will say is that you're, you're absolutely right. My Art is a practice of my activism and uh, my practice of being an engaged citizen. Um, I often like to think about my work in the context of um, a a cinema movement called the, the, it was called the Third Cinema. It was um, a coin, a a term coined by Latin American filmmakers. Um, And they sort of believed that all art was political, all cinema was political, all films were political, whether you're watching um, crazy rich Asians or the Terminator or, you know, that they all have a politics. And um, and sort of that cinema could be a tool for social change. And that is because um, it inspires empathy. And, um, you know, in Meredith's where she sort of uh, questions what intelligence is. And and I think in my own work, I sort of parallel. Pull from that and sort of talk about intelligence in terms of what is intelligence without empathy, and um, and so um, in my practice of film, it is this belief that through cinema you have this experience of identifying with someone radically different than you, and in documentary, everyday people who are heroes, and and so through that experience, you can actually um, move someone to spark social change, which is why I miss being in the theater when the lights go up and you get to engage and have a conversation. Um, But I think even in the making of this film, um, I mean, the practice of documentaries reminds me perpetually that everyday people can make a big difference. And I've seen that already in the making of this film. Um, in June, we saw sea change that we never thought possible, which was that um, the biggest tech companies in the world—three of the biggest—IBM uh, said that that they would stop um, researching and deploying um, and selling facial recognition to law enforcement. Um, Microsoft said it would stop selling facial recognition to law enforcement, and. Uh, Amazon said it would put a one-year pause on sale of uh, facial recognition to law enforcement. That was sea change that we never thought possible, and it happened through the incredible groundbreaking re- research of Joy Balamwini and Deborah Raji and Tim, Timnet Gebru, and all of the people that came before, you know, um, and sort of built the field, and also people in the streets who made those connections. Um between um, racially biased invasive surveillance technology and civil rights. And so I think that um, I really have seen firsthand um, that films can spark the kind of conversations that make social change, which is why I'm so grateful to be part of this conversation. and. Um, for people watching the film and and, and and chatting with us on a Saturday, um, and but also that this is kind of the way the world changes and especially on an issue where we're just at the beginning of public understanding. And if we can start to share the film and read all of the books of the people in the film and start to have these conversations at our dinner tables and with our colleagues, then we can start to have these conversations with our
2: policymakers and at our companies. I hear this question a lot, actually, or it's implied a lot. It's implied very often. Um, there's a lot of interesting uh, tensions that people present, especially around, you know, should we reform these systems or should we abolish them? Like, should we tear them down? Um, and I, And that tension comes up a lot, especially for facial recognition, where um, uh it is like very reason, like, you know, there's very specific situations where it's clear that facial recognition is not the right tool, given how uh, dangerous it can be. Um, but on the other hand, you know, this is a tool that doesn't work for a specific population that's at risk of. That um, mismatch escalating to the point of arrest as in the case of Robert Williams. So there's that tension that always does exist with this work. I think my stance is that, um, uh, you know, often they're not actually really conflicting positions. A lot of the work that we've done to reveal like the dysfunction and the limits of you know, facial recognition systems have led to bans, especially in really sensitive situations like law enforcement. And the reason we were able to do that is because, you know, if it doesn't work for a particular group, why is it on the market? Um, and that's exactly what Chilini was sort of mentioning around these big tech companies realizing, because uh, you know, when we first uh, they weren't they weren't very nice to us when we first uh published the paper and were in the press uh, especially amazon sort of the first time i i still remember it very vividly um <laughs> the experience of uh uh first publishing our audit results and um amazon's response to that being yeah. very defensive um and i i remember um uh you know subsequently after a bit of back and forth um especially with a lot of expressed support from the research community where they landed and where microsoft was at the time and ibm at the time in terms of messaging in response to our study was oh we support uh um like we are supportive of facial recognition regulation but we're still going to continue to sell it to police we're still going to have it on the market and i think now we're um like shalini mentioned we're at the beginning of a very long journey of public education and i think we're getting at a point where um people can finally say that wait if a system is sort of systematically uh, dysfunctional for a particular group and not working for a particular group, it shouldn't be on the market. We should pull it out of the market completely. It shouldn't be sold. Um, it shouldn't be affecting people's lives if it's sort of consistently putting their lives at risk. Um, so I think that's something that um, is a very recent development, that level of understanding about how serious this issue is and how um, you know the disproportionate impact of these systems does necessitate sometimes um, us making the move to remove them as part of what it means uh, to move forward as a society or move towards a more just society. Um so I do think that those are not like opposing goals but complementary goals in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, changing this technology uh, definitely uh, factors into the change that needs to happen for society. Mm-hmm. So
3: Sam, I think your question was about uh, the interplay between art and activism and computer science.
0: I think. Uh, my and question so, question more broadly was about activism and how you express your activism uh, through your work, and uh, maybe for folks that have not integrated their work and their activism, you know, how they, you know, can can or should be thinking about being active in these areas that we're discussing?
3: So I think that Joy is really an inspiration in this regard. Uh, she's an artist, She's an activist, she's a computer scientist. Uh, and I love that the world has changed to a point where those pursuits can be integrated. Uh, so I'm a writer. Uh, I'm an artist. Uh, journalism is my job. Uh, and computer science was my job. Uh, and I care deeply about the issues of the world. And it's nice to be able to integrate all of those things uh, in the field of artificial intelligence. So, the fight against facial recognition, uh, I'm so pleased with the uh, developments in the fight against the use of facial recognition and policing that have come about as a result of the film. Uh, and I think that Joy's, uh, that Joy's path from doing an art project to t- testifying you know, as testifying before Congress about the evils of facial recognition that we see in the film is a really inspiring progression. And so I do hope that it helps other people to think about okay, if you're passionate about a kind of art and you're passionate about an issue, how can you bring these things together? Uh, in artificial intelligence, I'm particularly excited about the policy work that's happening. And I would point to Deb's, uh, Deb's work on uh, auditing algorithms as an inspiration here. Also Kathy O'Neill's work on auditing algorithms. Uh, so lots of people will look at the problem with facial recognition algorithm and say, oh, well, you know, yeah, it doesn't work on some people, but we need it anyway, so we're just gonna use it. Like, and maybe we'll just make the training data more diverse and that will fix things. You know, Joy's work is so amazing because she says, no, that's not the fix. The fix is actually to ban this because this technology is weaponized against people of color, against poor people. Uh, It has disparate impact. Right. And so one of the ways that we can uh, better use algorithms in the world is we can audit them. Okay, so pointing to Deb's work, again, let's audit the algorithms, let's do that within a policy framework, uh, and then let's do that in order to achieve a more just and equitable future.
1: And, and just to add to that, um, there are fantastic organizations in the field doing this work, and that's what the film aims to do, is build a coalition among the the. the the longtime stakeholders in the field. And you can go to codedbias.com and click on the take action page and you'll find links to the Algorithmic Justice League, to the ACLU, uh, to uh, organizations on the ground like gente who are stopping no tech for ice and other camp- ongoing campaigns. And um, one easy way that people can Happen is to support these great organizations who are doing work in the field. Hmm.
0: One of the themes that recurred through the film is this contrast between what's happening in, in the West, namely the US and the UK and China. Um, this is, is raised in a question by Plan in the YouTube chat. Um, this one specifically, maybe to Shalini, about this conversation with this woman who is effusively enthusiastic about China's social credit system. Um, and uh, Plan is curious, you know, what the context was of that. You know, did she know that this was going to be a part of this documentary? Yes, um.
1: just to give a little context, I will say that that um, it, it, China doesn't have freedom of press of an ind- independent media. And so it would have been um, likely dangerous to get someone who is speaking out against facial recognition without promise of protecting their identity. And it was something that we thought a lot about when we were mm-hmm. undertaking those scenes. Um, and so we got someone who that was actually what she thought. I mean, we didn't tell her to say anything. This is actually what she thought. And, um, and so what I think is so interesting about it is you sort of think, oh, that's a galaxy far, far away, but you know, when was the last time you were about to meet someone and looked up how many Instagram followers they had or, uh you know, Google stalk them once before you um, were thinking about hiring them. Like there are all kinds of ways in which our behavior is being shaped by what Kathy O'Neill says so well as um, algorithmic obedience training. Mm-hmm. And I also thought um, what I thought was so interesting in parallel about that scene with, you know, and, and I think in the film, it was important to, to look at three approaches to data, like the the example in China, which is this unfettered access to data by an authoritarian regime where people scan their face as part of a scoring system and say how convenient it is. <laughs> but, but, but it is, I think for me, it was that line because it was um, the, the point in which w- we lose part of ourselves for efficiency. And where, and I think encoded bias, there were so many moments where I was like, "Oh, wow, this is the line where civil liberties gets crossed," um, and it's invisible and opaque to us, and it it takes a lot even to understand it. <laughs> um, you know, for instance, in the UK, where there are laws. But at the same time, you see a citizen um, pulling his face up because he doesn't want to be subject to a random identity check by police. And I tried to make a um, I thought it was important to make these parallels to South Africa being arbitrarily stopped with the ID cards by police and how these are things that we associate with an authoritarian state. Um, These are not things that we associate with a democracy. And so I think that um that moment where the man holds his um shirt up and gets ticketed.
0: It's a fine.
1: It, it yes, it's a fine and it's also wow, that's the moment. That's where how the the overstep police overstep happens. Um or when Jim Jordan says when I was watching Joy testify before Congress and Jim Jordan a Republican um, from Ohio says, um, wait a minute, a 100, and this is something you don't see on TV. Uh, Republican from Ohio and AOC, <laughs> Democrat from Queens agreed. I saw it in, in real life with my own eyes. <laughs> um, but basically, there was a moment where Jim Jordan said, 117 million Americans are in a police database that they didn't don't need a warrant to access and there's no one in an elected office overseeing this process and to me i thought that was such uh an example of how it's going right from technology companies to law enforcement with no um essentially no nothing in between and that's why um the work that Joy and Deborah and Timna did was so was so very important.
0: And what struck me in the segment about the uh, facial recognition in the UK, beyond the fact that the individual gets the the ticket for uh, not participating in the system, was the it was mentioned that it the system had a ninety eight percent false positive rate. That's yeah, crazy.
1: It's crazy. And we only have that data because of the UK, um, because of the GDPR in the UK and and the work of Silky Carlo and Big Brother watch that we have that data Um, in the US. We don't have data. The first US citizen was wrongly accused, a Detroit man who is held for 30 hours, arrested in front of his family and his neighbors and never asked for his license. because of facial recognition. And in spite of that, the Detroit police is going forward with use of facial recognition. So all of that is to say, as like terrifying it was to see those scenes in the UK, keep in mind that I can't even get that information as a journalist here in the US mm. um, because these tools are, getting, are are being used in secret. And that's kind of
0: terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, Meredith or Deb, any comment on the U.S., U.K., West, uh, East China contrast that the film presents?
2: Yeah, I really, um, I really love that part of the film. I thought it was very well done. Um, I think sometimes, uh, I think it was done well done for a couple of reasons. One being that um, sometimes I think people uh, try to make the contrast to China to be like, oh, we're, you know, like China is so much worse. And, you know, we're here in the U.S. and in the land of the free. And I think this documentary did a good job showing that, um, yeah, you might be seeing these things happening in, you know, the U.K. and China and other countries, but here's how it shows up in the U.S. Like it takes on different forms. Accountability looks different um uh in terms of acceptance and social understanding of these systems that's different um, and here is like the the result of those differences, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we, we've escaped you know su- or we're, we've escaped any kind of surveillance state or any kind of a level of monitoring just because we happen to be in a democratic society and I thought that was very well done where um, the narrative wasn't necessarily it was very kind of an open-minded uh uh approach rather than, Um, just playing off of the common narratives that we hear around uh, facial recognition use in other countries to sort of paint the U.S. as this advancing figure. And I think there was actually an interview that you had um, with, I think, Zainab, or you had had an interview in there of someone that was really speaking directly to this, where um, she had mentioned, like, you know, we have all of these conceptions of what China is and what surveillance in China is. And it's not that those conceptions are wrong or that they're not politically valid in terms of a critique of that Political regime that they endure there, um, but we can't pretend that none of those issues are issues that are relevant to the U.S. There, there's a many dimensions of the issues that we see in, of surveillance technology in China that are directly related to things that we should be worried about in the U.S. But we just are not aware of, or that we, or we don't have access to the data, or we don't have an understanding of how it plays out in our lives. So I thought that was just very well done um, in the documentary, and I think that's that was one of the sort of Key takeaways from that that dynamic that exists. Um, the other thing I wanted to flag too was that opportunity for accountability that exists in the U.S., where like in a democratic society, like ideally the government represents the people and is protecting the well-being of the people. How well that actually plays out? I'm a very optimistic person, so I don't know like how well that actually plays out. Um, but ideally, you know, regulation is there for the protection of the people, and you know, people in Congress should be if they really care about their constituents, they should understand their role or their their responsibility to like uh, to really push forward regulation to protect those constituents. And something that I've always found very interesting about facial recognition regulation, because there's a couple of bills now that are being debated in Congress and at the state level and the local level in different regions of the U.S. Um, and in Canada, is that it is like a very bipartisan issue, strangely, Um. Uh, you know, where uh, it's not yet been politicized. <laughs> um, so you have um, a lot of these bills, you know, co-sponsored by different, by, by you know, uh, a Republican and a Democrat. Um, and a lot of these committees um, investigating sort of some of these privacy issues, you know, representing the full political spectrum. So I think that there is something to be said about that in terms of uh, my personal hope to see some level of accountability emerge in the future. Um, and, and that being uniquely possible in the U.S. versus other countries, I think um, hopefully there's a lot of potential for that to play out here.
0: One thing that jumped out at me is being unique about our setup in the U.S. and uniquely frustrating maybe is that you've got these government agencies uh, or or Using technology developed by commercial co- companies, you know, think of like ProPublica, and using the kind of commercial IP as a shield for, you know, seeing what's actually happening, and then the commercial companies are saying, "Well, you know, we need regulation. You know, it's 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 on the government." And so you have this kind of accountability loop uh, that uh, you, you can see taking shape.
2: Yeah, it becomes even weirder when you go to a policy meeting with the government and then you see like, you know, a bunch of corporations there as well, <laughs> where they'll invite like advocacy groups and there'll be like maybe two or three seats for advocacy groups and like 30 seats for, for corporate representatives. And I, it took me a long time to actually understand the level of um, lobbying that happens and how that really does shape a lot of the political outcomes and uh, practical outcomes of like the US government system. Uh, I think I was very naive um, you know, right after the Amazon announcement to halt facial recognition sale to the police for a year, I think I was very I was very naive about their strategy. And the more I've been engaging with, you know um the policy side of things, um, I'm realizing that what it actually meant was them doubling down on their investment of like lobbyists. <laughs> like there's Amazon lobbyists in every corner of every conversation of facial recognition in congress right now are they
0: lobbying uh, for this thing they say they want are they actively <laughs> lobbying for regulation i find that hard to believe
2: i i don't think uh, i think they're i think they they know that facial recognition is sort of this um in public in public interest it's a it's a desired outcome for a lot of um, people in the us and as a result of that a lot of representatives feel like they need to push for it Um, But I think Amazon is advocating for a very specific type of regulation that, um, um, uh, well, I don't even want to say anything, but (laughs) I will say that, yeah, I don't think uh, whenever I'm in the rooms of these companies, um, they're not necessarily uh, advocating to be even further restricted. Like, you know, they're bringing up issues around IP and concerns that um, are very relevant in the corporate context, but might not necessarily be what's best for the people affected. And I think this plays back to that earlier question of, you know, what's the difference between social dilemma and coded bias? I really think that, um, you know, there's just different priorities coming from both sides. I I think a lot of the, you know, the advocates that Cellini uh, thankfully highlighted in her in her documentary, because I don't think, you know, that perspective is necessarily as visible always. Um, So a lot of those advocates, they have very specific concerns because they're working with the affected population directly. And a lot of the times the contrast you see between, you know, an Amazon lobbyist's version of what regulation means and uh, an advocate's version of what regulation means is that one person is prioritizing, you know, a bottom line and the other person is prioritizing actual people. Um, and it, it leads to sort of this inevitable tension um, that needs to get resolved. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think we're at a point where regulation, um, you know, is likely to happen, but I do think the the will the regulation be what we need in order to actually protect people? That really depends on a lot of factors, and I'm not sure if corporate involvement is going to move us uh, towards the kind of regulation we need uh, to protect those people.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would put it even more plainly. I would say that getting tech companies to design tech regulation is like, asking the fox to guard the hen house, right? Like, yes, they're (laughs) going to design regulation. And yes, everybody thinks we need regulation. But if you're asking Amazon to design the regulation or asking Facebook to design it, you're just gonna end up with the same problems we have now because these companies have been self-governing for the entire time they've been in existence. and. Self-governance was the key word, the operating principle for the early internet and self-governance is what got us to police use of facial recognition. Like self-governance is what got us to, uh, you know, all the things that Facebook is doing to undermine democracy. So it's maybe not a great idea to have the tech companies designing the regulation Maybe we should look
1: outside. That's what I always say. What's the solution? I say, don't leave the tech bros alone. <laughs> <laughs> don't leave them alone in the laboratory. Don't leave them alone in governance.
0: <laughs> Shalini, in the film, you highlighted the uh, this experiment that Facebook did with um, influencing elections. And I don't know if you foresaw how we would feel about watching that in uh, you know 10 days out from the election uh, but it was very bracing, chilling um, and, and seemed particularly uh, you know poignant. Uh, I'm curious if you you know I'm curious your kind of thoughts about the 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 aspect that uh, Meredith just raised this whole kind of I think we're starting to see, or it starts to feel like that democracy has a certain level of fragility to it that uh, is apparent more poignant in 2020 than perhaps in years past. I'm wondering if that's something that you meant to directly take on and kind of what that all means for you.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think absolutely. And that Facebook scene was in and out of the film for a really long time. My editors tell you that we, were back and forth and it was cut and it wasn't cut. There there were two scenes that were like that. Um, And so um, we ultimately put it in because everyone who saw it was so astounded by it. Um, And because it was a long, you know, as a filmmaker, I'm trying to sort of gauge how much talky, how how much sort of conversational um, exposition you're putting in but i think that that was so astounding because it was a scientific study done twice published in nature and also showed this sort of n- this nudge of power in this subtle change of i voted plus icons or i voted no icons of your friends faces and how that what could be enough to swing an election with nobody looking and by the way of course they can tell who what political uh dispositions we are based on our facebook profiles i i almost put nothing on my facebook profile and i was just looking at myself i was like oh yeah it's all there (laughs) Like you can know it all (laughs) and and so it's it's very interesting to me and so um, I don't think we've yet reconciled with that nudge of power in our lives, of uh, that silent hand of Would you like to read this book next? Would you like to see this movie next? Would you like to vote for this person? Um, would you like, as as Zeynep says, like Would you like discount tickets to Vegas? You know, um, if you're a compulsive gambler, and so it can knows those things about you, and so. Um, i think that is very unsettling um, especially as we come to terms with the impact that sort of misinformation and predatory information has already had on our on our democracy
2: yeah i was gonna say like the dynamic between um sort of algorithms and like influence or persuasion has always been very Alarming. Um, I was re- I was watched recently watching the Channel Four investigation on like um, how the Trump campaign had pretty much um, uh, through their data director at the time, which I think was Brad Pascal, they had sort of orchestrated this whole um, campaign to identify um, you know voters that were uh, borderline, but this is in twenty sixteen and and you know voting for the opponent and then actively discourage them from voting. That was the claim that Channel Four had done, and they had sort of they had gotten a bunch of data around it, and it was just really fascinating for me to see that investigation play out because um, it was, you know, a really clear example of how they you know, with advertising. Advertising has always sort of been discriminatory, and I had a great conversation with, um, uh, uh, you know, a civil rights lawyer about this, where they were saying, you know, it's so hard to go after Facebook for their advertising bias because. You know you have different organizations that will only put their ads in up in a particular neighborhood that they know has a particular demographic or they're only put their their they only advertise their product in a particular magazine that they know is going to go to a particular demographic so you know advertising is sort of this inherently discriminatory act and it has this history of uh you know creating profiles and stereotypes and and pitching things and making suggestions based off of that so it's so hard legally to go after these algorithms that are just doing that thing, um, But I think with the example that I mentioned around, you know, and Cambridge Analytica definitely uh, exemplified this as well, where, um, you know, the, the amount of reach that you have when you do that kind of algorithmic manipulation, but also how it can really escalate to the point of not just you convincing someone to buy A or buy B, but convincing them to not vote in an election where they have that right to vote. Um, And like pretty much engaging in that level of voter suppression and and compromising democracy and the democratic process in that way. It was just such an alarming uh, step where, you know, we I don't know how as a field we kind of went from, you know, uh, by the pink sweater versus the red sweater based off of, you know, your personality type uh, to uh, really, you know, challenging the democratic. The dem- democratic values that the country was built on.
0: Meredith, I'm, I'm curious if you have a unique perspective on this as a, a journalism. You know, journalistic institutions have, you know, endorsed candidates and participated in the political process uh, overtly. Facebook is certainly not a, you know, a, a journalistic institution. But I'm wondering if there's a, a unique take that you have coming from that, uh, coming from journalism.
3: I would say that Facebook is a publisher. They, uh, they like to pretend that they're not because that allows them to uh, to use CDA 230 as a shield. So CDA 230 is the clause that, uh, that says that telecom companies cannot be held responsible for what users do with their networks. And it was designed back in the pre-Facebook era. And it was designed for a company like Verizon who owned telephones and Verizon didn't want to be responsible for people committing crimes using telephone wires and you know if that makes sense like no we wouldn't hold Verizon responsible uh, but if Facebook pretends it's not a publisher then it's protected just like Verizon mm. so I, I just think it's quaint like to think about the fact that we had a time when uh, tech companies claimed, oh, well, whatever we're doing on our social network doesn't matter. Like it's mm-hmm. really not going to influence people. And, you know, the icons we do, the simple choices we make, like we just have the autonomy to do make these choices. Mm-hmm. Like, don't worry about this. This is going to be fine. Like it's absurd now in retrospect, that we ever thought that,
0: yeah, we didn't know that Shalini is putting it on film. That you know, there's a massive study with massive impact uh, that demonstrates that in a very sensitive context.
3: Yeah, yeah, um, I was going to add- look at the people uh, who are trying to reform CDA 230. That's a very, very interesting, uh, very, very interesting debate.
2: I was going to add really quickly to what, uh, Meredith, you just mentioned around uh, social media platforms being a publisher. Um, You know, um, last week was uh, the M-Tech conference, uh, which was sort of the MIT Tech Review sort of uh, conference around a lot of these sort of emerging topics. And there was an interesting moment um, where there was someone from Twitter that was being asked questions around, um, you know, what he sees as the responsibility of the platform and the engineers working on these systems to address, you know, the disinformation challenges that they have on that platform. And he was sort of trying to circumvent the question of like, oh, well, you know, there's only so much we can do. And then it it kind of, uh, you know, there was a good sort of interaction that happened where someone was like, well, you know, any other publisher has that editorial control, which we know these social media platforms do have, but also, uh, a sense of that, um, and I, I don't know, Meredith, if you, you could probably speak more to this, but there is a sense of sort of uh, an ethical code that journalists need to uphold and understand in terms of fact-checking, in terms of their role uh, uh, as navigators of truth and as 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 people that control that public conversation. And um, yeah, it just seemed as if that was not part of the understanding of these tech companies, of like how they manage the information on their platforms. like. I'm curious as to how much that actually bleeds over in terms of the decades and centuries of you know, uh, the ethics conversation happening in journalism and how that plays into sort of some of the, uh, the social media ethical issues that we see today. I don't know if they're related at all, but it definitely feels as if there's lessons to learn from journalism for these social media companies.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I teach at NYU Journalism, and we have a code of ethics that our students learn. Uh, And uh, in journalism, uh, the major organizations all have codes of ethics. Individual publications have codes of ethics. Mm -hmm. And it governs things like, as you said, like fact checking. You know, what kind of, uh, you know, when can you accept money from somebody who you might want to write about, which is to say never. (laughs) <laughs> right, So, uh, you know, it's not great for, you know, like journalism is not a place where you get rich. Tech is a place where you get rich. Like that's one of the big differences. Uh, so something else that is notable is that the ACM, the major uh, professional organization for computer scientists, uh, wrote a code of ethics in the early nineties and only updated it within the past two years. Yeah. Right. So, and they did not, they had formally an ethics requirement in computer science curricula, but nobody paid attention to it. So, the great thing about the tech ethics and the AI ethics movement right now is that people are paying attention to ethics and they're saying if we are going to create technologies, then the technologies have to be ethically implemented. Uh, and so the field of ethical AI, which is uh, the field that is explored in coded bias is really just exploding nowadays. Uh, we don't know everything uh, about how do we make ethical algorithms. We don't know uh, everything about how do we regulate uh, technology in an ethical way, but we're working our way through it. You know, it's, yeah. it's really hard. It's harder than anybody imagined. Uh, And, you know, the only way we're going to get there is by having conversations as a society about these really complicated topics. Mm
2: -hmm. I really like that you said that AI ethics is exploding. I remember um, I was working with Joy when before before the initial Gender Shades paper came out (laughs) and there was so much like fear and uncertainty around how it would be received and, um, you know, what would happen. And I'm glad that we're now. And, you know, and one of the reasons I started working with Joy in the first place is because she was literally like the only person I could find after pages of Google um, of of someone else that was thinking about the same problems. So I'm I'm really excited that now, you know, um, you know, there's there's so many different institutions and groups excited about this topic and ready to work on it.
3: Yeah,
0: so, it is really exciting. Mm-hmm. So, Sally, I. I've got a couple of favorite quotes from the film and uh, I wanted to share those and get your take on, on your favorites. And if, uh, Meredith and Deb, if you also have favorites, don't want to put you on the spot cause I was doing this, uh, beforehand. Uh, but one was when about an hour in, I think Joy says, accuracy draws attention, but we can't forget about abuse. Even if I'm perfectly classified that just enables surveillance. I think that spoke to kind of the broader challenge here. She started with this one specific thing that this device she was trying to build could not recognize her face. And then as part of this journey, she realized that even if it did, you know, we still have all these issues that we need to address. Uh, and then the other, I forget the speaker um, but she said, I think the thing I fear is not that we'll go down this 1984 totalitarian route, but rather that our you know, rights will be quietly eroded effectively uh, via surveillance. Also, I think a very powerful statement of you know, what is at risk here. Uh, what were the most you know, salient quotes or moments for you in the film?
1: Well, I love that. I feel like a cult classic of a te- like <laughs> of something <laughs> where you're qu- you're quoting Orwellian quotes from my documentary. all <laughs> <Well>, very exciting. <laughs> Written by feminists. I love it. It's just amazing <laughs> for me. <laughs> I I don't know. I'm just, um, I'm honestly, I'm happy not to be editing it anymore. (laughs) I know all the quotes. I know all of the dialogue in the film very well, so I won't recite it by heart.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Deb or Meredith, do you have any particular moments that were most impactful for you?
2: Um, There's this scene that's really funny where it's uh, Kathy O'Neill and she's like, for some reason she has like a rubik's cube in her hand i know shalini has more context on how that happened but she's talking about and and um she has a rubik's cube in her hand and she's solving it and it's like okay but the words coming out of her mouth are something like math can be incredibly dangerous and it messes up people's lives so it's just the juxtaposition of you know someone that's obviously very competent and you know inclined to sort of solve these puzzles and is doing so very easily um uh talking about the fact that you know you know, the, the mathematical tools that help her solve this Rubik's cube and understand how to algorithmically address that, you know, that, that, that puzzle um, are sort of the same algorithms that um, you know, are, are affecting people's lives, are, 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 are part of this bigger issue uh, in terms of the ethical issues and algorithms. So I just thought it was such a funny juxtaposition of like, you know, someone that's clearly just like solving this Rubik's cube and also like the words coming out of her mouth, too. Just like a, the, the, it was almost like ironic uh, to see both of those images together. And have her, have her saying seen well, this thing? I can I share how that was shot, was shot. Is that Kathy O'Neill? In
1: addition to like being like a PhD from Harvard in mathematics, is um, is uh, also um, has a bluegrass band. <laughs> Which Meredith and Joy have all on the cutting room floor is a is a night of all of them jamming out together. Um, So Kathy O'Neill, this is my first time meeting her. I had read her book, so I knew she went to math camp and was into Rubik's Cubes. So I brought a Rubik's Cube and Kathy comes in. It was like a Saturday or something. And she's hungover. <laughs> um, she comes in and she's like sort of stumbling in, s- sits into place because she was jamming out with her band the night before and sees the messed up Rubik's Cube because I can't sell a Rubik's
2: Cube, right? So <laughs> I, have <like> the, the
1: <laughs> um, I have the Rubik's Cube here. And literally, you see her sit down, she looks and she sees it. You see a second, like it clicks, and she's like, Give me the Rubik's Cube. (laughs) And then then my my DP, my camera person is like just setting up. I'm like (laughs) (laughs) And and so
3: so quickly she like solves it.
2: It was so funny. It was such a good juxtaposition. I don't know if you made her say that or if that just naturally came out of her mouth. That was <laughs> editing. But that was <laughs> okay, that was amazing. That I was verite. It really was beautiful.
0: <laughs> How about you, Meredith? Any uh, favorite moments?
3: Oh, every the moment, moment is my favorite. <laughs> uh, I mean, especially the bowling scene, of course. <laughs> uh, I love the interplay between Joy and AOC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would, I would just say that if you loved the film, like go out and read the books of the amazing people in the film, Great. you know, read, uh, read all of Joy's work, read Deb's work, read Amy Webb, read Sophia Noble, read Kathy O'Neill, read Zainab. Uh, it's, it just, it creates an amazing syllabus. Uh, and those are some of Terrific insights into
1: uh, what AI can and can't do. Yeah, all the links good. are on the Coded Bias website, by the way, CodedBias.com. Oh, and you can scroll down. What? I said, and read
2: Meredith's book, too. It's great. And the <laughs> link is on the oh, table page if you need a link to it. It's all there. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. That's very Fantastic.
0: cool. All of the amazing books. Came up in our uh, in our group viewing in the Slack conversation, and it was proposed to do a Twomo book club around uh, the books in this film. So I
1: love this; it's a, a great idea. Great <laughs> idea. Awesome.
0: well, thank you all so much for not just participating in this session, but also being a part of this amazing film and uh, the incredible work that you're doing.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Thanks so much. This was great. Thanks you so much, Sam.
0: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll catch you all soon. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.